0: Open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 49 Jeremiah chapter 49 and this is a continuation of the judgment of God upon these disobedient rebellious nations these idol worshiping nations and chapter 49 is the judgment it begins the judgment on Ammon but there's also several other nations in chapter 49 it received the judgment of God. And as we're going through, a lot of it seems to be like history of these nations and, and just background of these nations, and it, it just might seem to be like a maybe a little dry when it comes to history and those kind of things, but understand why these things, why these nations are being judged and the lessons that we can learn from these, these judgments of God because they still apply to us today as nations and individuals. So we've seen that the people who had been left in Judah made the mistake of going down into Egypt. Remember, judgment was coming. They thought if they stayed there in Judah, that you know, this judgment would, would come upon them, and, and they'd escape by, by going down to Egypt where they would be safe. Well, they disobeyed God after they were told not to go, but, and they went there anyway so what they did they, they really jumped out of the frying pan and into the fire and they made things worse for themselves and a lot of times when God says hey don't do that you know we might not understand why he's telling us that it might in our minds be the, the, the sound the, the most uh, make the, the thing that makes sense to do and yet God says don't do it because he's got other plans and it's trusting the will of God so And a lot of times we make things worse than they really are by figuring out we know best. The war was over in Israel. Nobody would want to come into that land now and take it because the cities there had been totally destroyed. They they, They had been totally run over, burned down, and nothing was left but rubble and ruin. Only the ashes of what used to be a former civilization were left there. And the remnant should have stayed. God said he was going to take care of them. They could have built up their land, but instead they ran off to Egypt thinking that they would be safe there. God knew that Egypt would be the area of the next battle of Nebuchadnezzar. And when Nebuchadnezzar took Egypt, he would take these people for the second time. They'd be captured again, and they would suffer again. And see, God knew that. And that's why they should have listened to God when they said, hey, stay in the land of Israel. God knows the future. He might not let us know. We don't know for sure, but we need to trust when God says, hey, just hang in there. You're gonna be okay. So when Nebuchadnezzar took Egypt, he took these people for the second time. Again, captured and suffered again. They thought they were running away from the war. Literally, from their problems. And and a lot of times we think, that's what we're doing. We're running away. You know, we're gonna, it's going to be better if I take off. If I do this, I do that. You can't run away from your problems. And a lot of times we make them worse. They thought they were going to a land where they would have plenty to eat. The only thing that they thought about was their, was their safety and their stomachs. Listen, when our attitudes and our behavior and our goals aren't based on a desire to live for God... And when God's truth is no longer a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, we've sunk to a low level that won't bring us peace or abundance. And this has been the experience down through history. History has a lot of great lessons to teach us if we'll only listen. And so this chapter continues God's prophecies given through Jeremiah having to do with the judgment that was coming to the nations that were surrounding Israel. Like the Moabites, the Ammonites. They were descendants of Lot's incestuous relationship with one of his daughters in Genesis 19. And they were enemies of the Jews. And chapter 49 covers the prophecy of judgment against Ammon as well as several other cities. So let's begin with chapter 49, verses 1 through 3. And it reads, Against the Ammonites, this is what the Lord says, Has Israel no sons? Has he no heir? Why then does Milcom inherit Gad, and his people dwell in its cities? Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will cause to be heard an alarm of war in Rabbah of the Ammonites. And it shall be a desolate mound, and her villages shall be burned with fire. And then Israel shall take possession of his, in- his inheritance, says the Lord. Wail, O Heshbon, for Ai is plundered. Cry, you daughters of Rabbah. Gird yourselves with sackcloth. Lament and run to and fro by the walls. For Milcom shall go into captivity with his priests and his princes together. So Jeremiah rebuk- rebukes Ammon for living in the city of Gad after its inhabitants were driven out. And even though the Ammonite forces actually took Gad, credit was given to Milcom. Now Milcom was the Ammonite god. Milcom is also called Molech and Milcam, which literally means their king. The fire god Molech was the guardian of the children of Ammon and Chemosh, was the, God of the, Ammon, uh, was the Moab, uh, God of the Moabites. Now, according to Jewish tradition, the image of Molech was made of brass. It was hollow on the inside, and it was located outside Jerusalem. Molech had the face of a calf. His hands were stretched out like a man whose hands were open to receive something, and they would build a fire inside the hollowed-out idol of brass. And the priest would take the baby and put it into the hands, the red hot hands of this idol god, and the baby would burn to death. Molech was the lord and master of the Ammonites, and their country was his possession. For Ammon's crimes, God warned them that an unnamed enemy was going to come against Rabbah and make it a pile of rubbish and destroy the villages all around it. And the villages are described in verse 3, notice, he says, "...as you daughters of Rabbah." So these villages are described as the daughters of Rabbah there in verse 3. Rabbah was located on the Jabbok River, about 14 miles northeast of Heshbon, and it was the main city of Ammon. Today, it's the, it's the, the present city today of Ammon, uh, Jordan, the capital of Jordan. So Heshbon and Ai would also be destroyed. Heshbon was a Moabite city, and it seemed to be controlled by Ammon, and and at that time, Ai uh, was there, which uh, Ai means ruin, and it's only mentioned here in the Old Testament as an Ammonite city. The, the, The inhabitants of Rabbah, or the daughters of Rabbah, which could be understood as women or as daughter villages, they were called to mourn this destruction. The call, it says here, to run to and fro by the walls, this is based on an uncertain meaning of the Hebrew. It could be a picture of the confusion inside the surrounded city. So the people would mourn over the destruction of Rabbah and the capture of their god Molech along with the priests and his priests and his officials. Look at verses 4 and 5 now. Why do you boast in the valleys? Your flowing valley, O backsliding daughter. Who trusted in her treasures, saying, Who will come against me? Behold, I will bring fear upon you, says the Lord God of hosts, from all of those who are around you. And you shall be driven out, every one headlong, and no one will gather those who wander off. So the Ammonites boasted about their valleys because they were so fertile and they were so fruitful. They felt they gave them protection from their enemies. And like complacent Moab, remember we learned last week in chapter 48, uh, Moab was complacent. Moab was was living in its dregs or was settled in its comfort. And and so complacent Moab, like complacent Moab, and like Edom, Ammon, they all felt safe from invasion because the people lived in an area that was kind of impenetrable. It was inaccessible. It, It was hard to get into. And also because of their great wealth. But the Lord was going to bring terror on them from those around them. And all those who are around you, he says, I'm going to bring terror on you. And everyone's going to be driven out with nobody to come and help you as you run like fugitives. Look at verse 6. But afterward, I will bring back the captives of the people of Ammon, says the Lord. Just like Egypt and just like Moab. This judgment message against Ammon ends with a word of hope. Now, it's not clear how their prosperity would be stored, but we see that God promises again that there, was, there would be some hope. Now, verses 7 through 22 covers the prophecy against Edom. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. Against Edom, thus says the Lord of hosts, or this is what the Lord says, is wisdom no more in Teman, Has counsel perished from the prudent? Has their wisdom vanished? Flee, turn back, dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Dedan. For I will bring the calamity of Esau upon him, the time that I will punish him. So Edom was in the territory that's south and more to the east of the Dead Sea. It's an area between the Dead Sea and the Gulf of Aqaba. The Israelites descended from Jacob. The Edomites, they descended from his twin brother Esau, so both nations descended from their father Isaac, but there was constant conflict between these two nations and Edom was happy when Jerusalem fell. Now the city of Teman, answered, uh, I mentioned here, Teman was either a city or a section in Edom or it's a way of referring to Edom as a whole. It was named for a grandson of Esau and known for its wisdom. But now, as the word says, that wisdom has, has vanished Wisdom had vanished But even the wisdom of Teman Couldn't have saved Edom from God's wrath The people of Dedan They were, they were uh, advised to run from the, from the invader And they said hey Hiding caves to get away from this invader Dedan was a flourishing city You know there was, there was Caravans that traveled through it And God told those living there To flee to the desert Or they would also be destroyed So Teman and Dedan were at opposite ends of the country. This kind of shows how widespread God's destruction would be. It was going to be from one end of the country to the other. Verses 9 through 11. If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleaning grapes? If thieves by night, would they not destroy until they have enough? But I have made Esau bare. I have uncovered his secret places and he shall not be able to hide himself his descendants are plundered his brethren and his neighbors and he is no more so jeremiah reminded his listeners here of this law and added that thieves were going to take as much as they wanted he said when people came through to glean the grapes they would leave something but he says when god comes through now in destruction everything's going to be wiped out. Thieves would take only as much as they wanted, but God is going to strip Esau. Edom. Uh, Esau is another name for Edom. So it, it could be the Esau or Edom. But God was going to strip Esau or Edom bare. There was not going to be any place to hide. The nation would be totally destroyed. The threat though was softened a little bit by a show of God's compassion for taking care of widows and orphans mentioned in verse 11. They would be protected in the midst of this judgment that would overcome Edom. Verses 12 through 13. For thus says the Lord, Behold, those whose judgment was not to drink of the cup have assuredly drunk. And are you the one who will altogether go unpunished? You shall not go unpunished, but you shall surely drink of it. For I have sworn by myself, says the Lord, that Basra shall become a desolation a reproach, a waste, and a curse, and all of its cities shall be uh, a perpetual wastes. So in chapter 25, verses 15 through 29, the Lord spoke, remember, about the cup of fury, the cup of suffering that the nations had to drink. So using this metaphor for punishment here again, Jeremiah asked the question, hey, if those who didn't deserve to drink the cup had to drink it, then why should the guilty Edomites Expect to escape punishment. The Lord swore by himself. You can't swear by anything higher. It's the most solemn oath that could be pronounced. And that was that Basra would be destroyed. He said, I swear on myself, Basra is going to be destroyed. And Basra was once the main city of Edom. And its destruction would be looked on by onlookers as a curse that fell on it. Verses 14 through 16. Your fierceness, I'm oh, sorry, verse 14. I have heard a message from the Lord, and an ambassador has been sent to the nations. Gather together, come against her, and rise up to battle. For indeed I will make you small among nations, despised among men. Your fierceness has deceived you, the pride of your heart. O, who, o you who dwell in the clefts of the rock! who hold the right of the hill. Though you make your nest as high as the eagle, I will bring you down from there, says the Lord. Jeremiah had a message from the Lord that the other nations would be brought together to attack Edom. Edom would be reduced to an insignificant role among the other nations. Jeremiah said there, notice in verse 15, he says, I, Jeremiah says, God's going to make you small. Edom was then overrun by the Nabataeans in the 3rd century BC and forced out of its land. The cause of Edom's downfall, just like Moab's, was its pride, its confidence in itself. It was secure, it felt secure from all of its enemies. And, and, it, and, and when God struck them, judge them, it inspired terror, fierceness in the others because they thought that you know, they were impenetrable. You live in a rock fortress, God says, and you control the mountain heights. But he says, even if you make your nest among the peaks like the eagles do, God, Jeremiah says, God's going to bring you down. And again, you know, God, Hey, it doesn't matter who, who we are, or how powerful a nation we are, God will bring them and can bring them down. Pride and self-confidence have been the downfall of many nations as well as many individuals. Because, see, pride makes us think that we can take care of ourselves. Pride makes us think, hey, I don't need God. I can handle myself. I can handle my own life. Even serving God and serving others can lead us into pride. That's why we need to constantly examine ourselves, examine our life examine our service for God and we need to ask God Lord show me point out anything in my life that 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 you know that's not of you Lord remove any pride that I might be holding inside you know as the psalmist said in Psalm 139 search me Lord search me thoroughly know my heart try me or test me and know my thoughts and see if there's any wicked or hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And that's, that's something we don't like to do a lot of times is that, that self-search, that self-examination. Look at verses 17 and 18 now. Edom also shall be an astonishment. Everyone who goes by it will be astonished and will hiss at all its plagues as in the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah. And their neighbors, says the Lord, no one shall remain there, nor shall a son of man dwell in it. Edom is going to be a thing of horror. Everybody who passes by it are going to be shocked at the devastation. And it says they're going to hiss at the destruction that they see there. And to hiss was was sort of a mockery. So the people would go by and and make this hissing sound, I guess, and and, and, and it would just be a mockery, you know, at at the destruction that they see there. You know, it will be like the destruction, he says, of Sodom and Gomorrah. Also, the towns that surrounded them. That's what the Lord told them. No one will stay there. Nobody's going to live there anymore. And these verses are speaking of the severity of the destruction that God will bring and the extent of the destruction that God's going to bring. The word overthrow here in these verses, the word overthrow, it's not a lightweight word. It's not a a gentle word. It speaks of great destruction. And in the account of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19, this says the cities were cut down to the ground. In other words, they were totally destroyed. And for the most part right now, they lie underneath the the south end of the Dead Sea today. The range of destruction, it says, and their neighbors. Sodom and Gomorrah were going to be destroyed and their neighbors. Two cities besides Sodom and Gomorrah were also destroyed in this judgment. There were five cities in that area and only one was spared and that was Zoar. God spared Zoar for Lot's sake. Sodom and Gomorrah were the main offenders in their wicked sin. But other cities had been influenced by the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, so they experienced the same judgment. And that's that's the influence that evil has. Evil has a long and powerful influence, and, and and judgment also has just as strong, just as long, even longer, and and just as powerful of a judgment. And it says here, no one shall remain there. Judgment wiped out the population and these cities again were never populated. Verses nineteen through twenty-two. Behold, he shall come up like a lion from the floodplain of the Jordan against the dwelling place of the strong. But I will suddenly make him run away from her. And who is a chosen man that I may appoint over her? For who is like me? Who will arraign me? And who is that shepherd? And who will um, withstand me? Therefore, hear the counsel of the Lord that he has taken against Edom. And his purposes that he has proposed against the inhabitants of Teman. Surely the least of the flock shall draw them out. Surely he shall make their dwelling places uh, desolate with them. The earth shakes at the noise of their fall. And the cry uh, its noise is heard at the Red Sea. Behold he shall come up and fly like the eagle. And spread his wings over Basra. The heart of the mighty men of Edom in that day shall be like the heart of a woman in birth pangs. So God compared himself to a hungry lion here that was coming out of the brush in Jordan, searching for a victim for food. God says, who's the the instrument? Who's going to be the chosen one? Who's the instrument of judgment that God's going to use against Edom? And it's not answered in this question. Verse 19 says, who is a chosen man that I may appoint over her? Shepherds were expected to protect their sheep from all predators, even if it meant risking their own lives. No shepherd or no ruler, it says here, would be able to put a stop to God's judgment on Edom. And notice God says here, Who's like me? Who can challenge me? What ruler can oppose my will? Obviously, no one. And then verse 20 continues with the metaphor of God like a plundering lion. Like the lion dragging away its kill while the shepherd just, you know, stands by and watches helplessly. God is saying through Jeremiah in the same way, I'm going to destroy the Edomites. Even their homeland is going to be destroyed. And even though Edom seemed to be a somewhat insignificant nation, it says the earth would tremble at its fall. Its cry of misery would be heard all through the land, even as far as the Red Sea, which was, again was the extent of Edomite territory. Again, Edom's enemy isn't named, but a metaphor of an eagle swooping down over Basra was probably meant to be Babylon. And when the day of judgment comes, the hearts of Edom's brave soldiers, hey, God says they're going to become like the heart of a woman in in, in labor, a figure that we, we see often used in the Old Testament. Verses 23 through 27 now is the prophecy against Damascus. So let's begin with verse 23. Against Damascus, Hamath and Arpad are shamed, for they have heard bad news. They are faint-hearted. There is trouble on the sea. It cannot be quiet. Damascus has grown feeble. She turns to flee, and fear has seized her. Anguish and sorrows have taken her like a woman in labor. Why is the city of praise not deserted? the city of my joy. Therefore, her young men shall fall in her streets and all the men of war shall be cut off in that day, says the Lord of hosts. I will kindle a fire in the wall of Damascus and it shall consume the palaces of Ben-Hadad. The sin of these cities named here resulted in their judgment isn't mentioned. Their sin isn't mentioned. It brought upon their judgment. But the bad news that they heard about the coming invasion, it discouraged them. It troubled them like the restless sea. And so in the face of the enemy, Damascus, you know, when the enemy comes, it says Damascus is described here as cowardly, in flight. They're gripped by panic and anguish and pain like a woman in labor. And it's not the, it's not the desolation of this city that they're grieving for. It's the fact that the people, people living there haven't saved their lives by leaving. And then verse 24 says those living in Damascus, they want to leave, but they're just so gripped with terror. In verse 26, there's also a more specific reason given for this terror. It says there, the young men and all the men of war will fall in the streets of the city and they're going to be killed by the enemy. So the point of verse 25 would be that the people were doomed and shouldn't waste any time getting out of the city. And even though God used human beings to bring about his judgment on the nations, Jeremiah often reminds the reader that it's God who is doing this. In verse 27. And that's why I can say when, we, when you first read this, there's a lot of history, there's a lot of facts here. But as you read through, notice those little words. Like what God says, notice in verse 2, I. Notice how many times he says I through this chapter. In verse 2, God says, I will cause to be heard an alarm of war. In verse 5, God says, I will bring fear upon you. In verse 10, he says, I have made Esau bare. In verse 15, God says, I will make you small. In verse 19, God says, I will suddenly make him run away. And then in verse 27, it says, God says, I will kindle a fire in the wall of Damascus. Again, showing God is doing all of this. Fire would burn the fortresses of Ben-Hadad, as well as the name of several of its rulers. Burn it to the ground. And then verses 28 through 33 covers the judgment against Kedar and Hazor. Look at verse 28 and 29. Against Kedar and against the kingdom of Hazor, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, shall strike, thus says the Lord. Arise, go up to Kedar, and devastate the men of the east. Their tents and their flocks they shall take away. They shall take for themselves their curtains, all their vessels and their camels and they shall cry t- out to them. Fear is on every side. There's no reason given, all right, for the destruction of these two nations, these two lands and the men there of the east describing the people who are living east of Israel here. The reason for including these these. What it seems like insign- insignificant people, it may be show- to show that no one, no one, even these, these, these insignificant people, no one, no matter how unimportant by our standards, will escape God's judgment. Their tents, their flocks, their camels, all of their goods, it says here, will be taken away by the enemy. They would be surrounded by their enemies and they would experience terror everywhere they turned. Verse 30, flee, get far away, dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Hazor, says the Lord. For Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has taken counsel against you and, and has conceived a plan against you. The Lord tells him, hey guys, run for your lives. He says, you, you, go hide in, in, in the deep caves. He says, because king Nebuchadnezzar, man of Babylon, he's plotted against you and he's preparing to destroy you. Verse 31 through 33. Arise, go up to the wealthy nation that dwells securely, says the Lord, which has neither gates nor bars dwelling alone. Their camels shall be for booty and the multitude of their cattle for plunder. I will scatter to all winds those in the farthest corners, and I will bring their calamity from all its sides, says the Lord. Hazor shall be a dwelling for jackals, a desolation forever, and no one shall reside there nor son of man dwell in it. So verse 31 is a call for Babylon to attack a nation living at ease and in confidence in their defenses. They're living in confidence uh, 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 because of their strength of their city walls. Because Kadar and Hazor were somewhat drifters. They were somewhat like pilgrims in the land. They didn't have any cities or city walls to protect them. They were isolated and they were mobile, giving them a a feeling of of false security. All of their animals, it says there, would become plunder for the enemy. And he was going to scatter them like the wind in every direction. The victims here are described as those who live in remote places. And then verse 33 warns that Hazor would become inhabited by jackals. And its destruction would be so thorough that nobody, no man would live there again. And then verses 34 through 39 covers the judgment against Elam. Look at verse 34. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet against Elam in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, saying, The message given to Jeremiah against the Elamites is dated as the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the king of Judah, in 597 B.C. Verse 35 through 38. So... Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will break the bow of Elam, the foremost of their might. Against Elam I will bring the four winds from the four quarters of heaven and scatter them toward all those winds. There shall be no nations where the outcasts of Elam will not go. For I will cause Elam to be dismayed before their enemies and before those who seek their life. I will bring disaster upon them. My fierce anger, says the Lord, and I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. I will set my throne in Elam and will destroy from there the king and the princes, says the Lord. The Elamites were famous for being good archers. They were good with a bow. That was their major military strength, their, their, their major weapon, their major power. But God's words there through Jeremiah says, it's going to be broken. It's not going to help them. Ammon depended on Molech and its riches, according to verses 3 and 4. Edom depended on wisdom, and it's hard to get to location in verses 7 and 16. Damascus depended on its reputation in verse 25. Kadar depended on its remoteness, in verse 31, and Elam depended on its bow. But notice, did any of these nations, on, what they, on their false securities, did it protect them from the judgment of God? No. All of their false senses of securities failed them. And the fate of those nations is a strong reminder that dependence upon human resources rather than God's will always fails. Isaiah speaks to us about the foolishness of not trusting God. He says, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and, and, and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord, Isaiah 31.1. Zechariah 4.6, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Jeremiah 9, and 24, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and he knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, For this, for in these I delight, says the Lord. No amount of education, no amount of power, no amount of wealth. These three things that the world depends upon and brags upon today, none of these things can, can, can bring about or guarantee God's blessings. God doesn't take pleasure in a nation's learning, in its political power or political influence or its economy or its armies or its gross national product, all that they, 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 they you know, provide for other countries. God delights in a people who practice kindness, justice, and righteousness because they know and fear the Lord. God promises blessings to those who obey Him, not to those who just perform, you know, religious ceremonies or or practices. Unnamed invaders, it says here, were going to attack Elam from all sides. And these invaders, these enemies were going to scatter the people in every which way. And there would not be a nation where Elam's refugees couldn't be found. They were going to be everywhere. The Lord would, it says, to, the Lord would set his throne in Elam. Now, in a figurative way, this was a, a figurative way of confirming God's sovereignty and judgment on the, on the Elamites. Because in the ancient East, what kings would do when they, when they defeated a nation... That king would go in and set up his throne right in the most obvious place so people could see who was king. Ancient kings would set up their thrones in conspicuous places when they conquered a land. And God says, I'm going to set up my throne in Elam. Let's close with verse 39. But it shall come to pass in the latter days, I will bring back the captives of Elam, says the Lord. So we have read how mighty and devastating God's judgment, how severe and devastating God's judgment on Elam was going to be. But notice how the message closes with a word of hope. Just like the word of hope that he gave to Egypt in chapter 46, to Moab in chapter 48, and to Ammon here in in verse 6. Elam became the center of the Persian Empire after 539 B.C. The message of hope teaches us that there are no limits on God's sovereignty. Thank God for that. It may include judgment on a nation. It may include exaltation of that same nation. All of these messages against these several nations here in chapter 49, they serve to affirm God's worldwide sovereignty on all nations everywhere. All nations all nations, far and wide, are subject to God's law and they will be held accountable. And all individuals are subject to God's law and we will be held accountable to him. Father, once again, we thank you for your word. And Father, thank you for the lessons that we see as a result of your judgment, God. The Lord, that no one, no one, Great or small escapes your judgment and that father all nations and all individuals will be held accountable for your will and your way God so Lord help us to understand Lord that you are sovereign that you are mighty and that you will you rule and reign in the affairs of nations and the affairs of men God you see all you know all you're almighty. Nothing escapes your eye. Nothing can, no, no man can thwart your plans or your purposes, Lord. And Lord, we, we thank you that you are sovereign. And we thank you, Lord, that you are involved in our affairs, God. Though sometimes we might not like it, but we know that we need you in, in, in our life every moment of the day, God. We need your grace. We need your mercy. We need your loving kindness. And we thank you, God. And it's in Jesus' wonderful name that we pray. Amen.